Hi everyone, and welcome to episode two in the new series of Econ and Me. For those who are new, I've created the show in an attempt to make economics more accessible and hopefully provide listeners with a foundation of knowledge to evaluate the economy. My name is Will Haynes and I've been involved either as a student or as a teacher of economics for the past 15 years. The theme for this series is to host monthly conversations with the next generation of social scientists on some of the most topical issues facing society. I have been fortunate enough in my profession to teach a number of gifted and inspiring students and these individuals offer me plenty of hope and optimism for the future. My guest today is Amy Borrett, who has this week started in her new role as data journalist at New Statesman. I taught Amy in my second year as a teacher and over the A-level course she began to really realise her potential as an economist. She went on to gain an undergraduate degree in economics from Cambridge and then won a scholarship to complete a master's in financial journalism at City University of London. She has since interned at the Financial Times, Investors Chronicle, Sifted, Business Insider and has now landed a full-time role at New Statesman. Amy is a journalist with a huge amount of talent and will hopefully follow in the path of the likes of Stephanie Flanders, Darshani David and Sani Beddoes. It was lovely to get back in touch with Amy to record this show and she remains such a modest individual despite her impressive achievements to date. I hope that Amy can inspire more females to engage in economics as it still remains a largely white, male-dominated discipline. In this episode, Amy and I discuss the future of work. We will look at issues facing the labour market before the pandemic, the impact that artificial intelligence may have on jobs, how the pandemic will change how we work going forward, and also focus on future developments in technology. So without further ado, here is our discussion. Right, okay, Amy, welcome to the show. Um, how are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. And how, how have you found uh, working throughout lockdown? It's been a bit of a challenge, but um, I think we've all had to adapt and, you know, hopefully keep going for the next few months and then we'll be back to a slightly more normal situation but we don't know. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So we're going to talk about the future of work um, but before we look about uh, look at the sort of the issues under the pandemic I just want to go back before to before the pandemic um, and think about what were some of the biggest issues facing the labour market in the western world in your opinion? I think it was a really interesting time in the labour market because we were seeing historically very low levels of unemployment. So in the UK and the US, for example, less than 4%, which, you know, post-war is some of the lowest levels we've seen. But at the same time, we weren't necessarily seeing the knock-on effects that we might expect. So in terms of real wage growth, so the quality of living that people were having and their ability to, to buy things, the amount of money they had wasn't actually increasing. And productivity was also um, historically quite low. Um, and that's not really what we'd normally expect because when the labour market is tight and there's quite low levels of unemployment, usually employers have to hike up their wages to attract talent. Um, and I think the sense that people have is that because this is happening because actually people are underemployed. So while more people are kind of in employment, they're actually maybe not working as many hours as they wanted to, which kind of then has knock-on effects to the rest of the economy. Um, and is even seen in policy, for example. So um, monetary policy, so the interest rates set by the central banks like the Bank of England have also been really low because we've been seeing low levels of inflation. Um, and that's kind of 
meant that coming into this crisis we've almost had a you know been a bit of a sticky situation because one of the first things that we might normally have done when faced with a recession is to reduce interest rates to stimulate the economy but we weren't able to do that because we already had really low interest rates which means that actually these kind of pre-existing um structural issues maybe we have in the economy have had knock-on effects to our ability to cope with what the economy is seeing at the moment Great. And, and just to touch on productivity, because we're going to talk about it quite a lot in, in the episode. Could you just explain to the listeners like what we mean by producti- productivity in economics? Um, and there's something called the, the productivity puzzle at the moment, whereby we have got, had this period of low productivity. Can, do you have any ideas as to why, why that's the case? Yeah, so I think it's hard um, to think about productivity because we think about you know our own productivity is you know how effective we are at doing you know something in a given time but on a kind of more macro scale when we think talk about productivity and economics we're thinking about the output that we have for the amount of kind of labor input that we have and I think the sense that economists have is that actually in the aftermath of the recession of kind of 2008 while um, output dropped quite significantly Um, And while we did see quite a lot of unemployment, it wasn't necessarily the amount of unemployment that there should have been to reflect that shortfall in output. And because Labour didn't fall kind of in kind of to the same extent that output did, we're actually seeing really low productivity now. Um, And there's a sense that that's kind of happening to an even greater extent now with the schemes like furlough scheme, for example. So while output's fallen significantly, a lot of jobs have been protected, which means that when we look at output figures to say the UK or the US, they're actually really low um, because it's not, because because a lot of people are still in employment um, when they're not actually necessarily contributing that much in terms of output. Excellent. And um, not not to put you on the spot with this question, but um, in terms of productivity, there's a few economists out there that will say that generally we are less productive than we were, let's say, 10 years ago. Um, Sorry, not less productive necessarily, but our productivity is not growing at the rate it was 10 years ago. But there's another school of economists maybe that's saying that we're just not picking up the growth in productivity because productivity measures aren't very good at picking up um, um, growth in um, whether tech sectors or service sectors what do you where where do you stand sort of on that uh I think it's a it's a very big question I think a lot of it you know I think there's definitely some merit in the argument that actually the our economies are changing quite a lot and we're very like service sector driven in a way that we weren't before and actually you know while while it's easy to become more productive in in terms of output when you're manufacturing something service sector you know you can't make a hairdresser really much more productive it like certain things take a certain amount of time so I think that actually a lot of it is I don't think it's necessarily as many structural issues associated with low productivity as maybe some people would like you to to think or to argue um and I'm sure there are issues with the way we measure productivity um but equally I think that you know the thing you know I think productivity has reduced so dramatically that we do need to look at ways to improve it and I think tech and areas of tech and automation um, kind of are a shining light in this regard because they are really going to help the economy pick up and hopefully pick up some of the slack that we're seeing at the moment um, from the recession and make us more productive long term. And do you think there's a little bit of a case of uh, uh, what we call in economics you know diminishing returns do you think it's a bit of a case of that 
we have just seen such good productivity growth over the last, I don't know, 10, 20, 30, 40 um, years that we're just, you know, how much more productive can we become as individuals? And we're always finding ways on an individual basis of trying to get more out of every hour that we work, but there must be a sort of a, a bit of a ceiling on that. So how much is it a case where we actually, we, we're, we're, yeah, we're, we're finding that we're just, we're, every extra uh, unit that we're trying to get out of something, we're just finding it harder. I think that's definitely true to some extent. And also the fact, I feel like sometimes if you try too hard to be productive, you reach the point where you're actually becoming unproductive. And there's definitely the sense we have this kind of like workaholic culture where you try and work every hour of the day, where you get to the extent where actually maybe you're not even working more is actually making you less effective so i think that you know yes there's definitely some question of whether actually you can only become a certain amount of you know productive you can only reach a certain productive level but i do think that a lot of developments in tech are really going to help on this front and i think we'll be surprised by how much we can adapt and improve our productivity by kind of accepting these tech innovations and using them to change the way that we work um even for example in the pandemic not commuting that we've you know gained a lot of time from that which is obviously going to help us be more productive uh, on the work front great um and i wanted to touch upon um, artificial intelligence today um can you just explain to listeners what it is and actually what kind of impact it can have on our labour market? Um, so artificial intelligence or AI is essentially tech that simulates human intelligence. So the ability to incorporate, say, learning or reasoning on perception in technology. And it includes a huge, huge array of um, sectors and areas. So, for example, machine learning algorithms that improve through experience and things like that. Um, and it ha is already having a hugely disruptive effect on the economy, but has the potential to have an even bigger effect. Um, and that's only been accelerated by the pandemic because obviously companies have been forced to digitize faster and to adapt to this new kind of world of work that we've seen. Um, so an example of that in the pandemic might be that before, if you called a customer service um, helpline, you'd get, you know, human at the end of the phone, whereas now companies might be using chatbots online to deal with that or um, robots being brought in to clean hospitals um, because they're more effective and safer, whereas before you might have had a, a person going in to clean it. So I think that we're already seeing it, but the while there are obviously benefits in terms of productivity the lot of the negative side of it is that it's displacing a lot of jobs out there uh, at the moment and there's a huge concern about the impact that it's having especially because a lot of the jobs that it's disrupting are low skilled and low paid jobs so it disproportionately is affecting vulnerable people and also exacerbating income inequalities so i think it's something that there's huge debates and arguments over and definitely the need for more policy orientated around it to to take into account the the changes that it's affecting on the labour market. Great and on the note of policy what what, what kind of changes can the government consider in response to this? Um, so I think the main one it, the big one is kind of retraining so I think if you accept that all of these displaced jobs are going to happen then actually you need to think about the way that you're going to accommodate for that especially if the people who are being affected are vulnerable people say you know the young people women the elderly or um, kind of minority workers uh, people who are probably disproportionately affected and so you need to put a lot of money into retraining programs so that they can find jobs in other sectors um I think you know it's a, it's a huge should be a huge concern at the policy level because I think as much as like 70 percent of the jobs that are high risk are women because they work in these kind of sectors say for example um 
I can't think now off the top of my head, but say they work in service sectors that yeah. might be displaced. Um, actually, you really need to put the training programs in so that they can reskill and get jobs elsewhere. And and there, there are a few economists that um, consider taxation as a as a form of um, responding to the to the situation. So just like we tax um, labour in terms in terms of income tax we consider something else um, for robots or for artificial intelligence. Um, do you think that's something in the pipeline? I don't know. I know it's something that, say, um, there are some high-profile people who are big advocates of it. For example, Bill Gates, I know, supports a, a kind of robot tax, some people call it. But I, I think it's hard because, you know, if you're going to tax it, the part of the argument for that is to slow down the speed of automations to kind of protect these jobs. But actually, I think there are many benefits. We talked about productivity, there are many benefits to automation and AI and all the things that come with it. I don't think necessarily we want to curb that innovation by taxing it. Also, I think there are many challenges to implementing this kind of taxation because it means that, you know, how do you even define what falls within AI? You know, using Excel spreadsheet speeds up doing something, you're going to tax people. You, you, it's kind of a really difficult concept. Another alternative is kind of a talk about taxing profits. But then even that has, you know, big problems because multinational big tech giants like Google and Facebook, you know, do they often their profit doesn't even necessarily reflect the amount that their market share or the amount of income that, you know, because they, you know, siphon their ta uh, profits through tax havens and things like that. It's, how would you even handle that? So I think there are big logistical challenges. So I'd be surprised if we see anything on that front anytime soon. Great. Um, right. Let's get on to the, uh, the pandemic. Um, so the last six or seven months have, you know, completely changed the world of work. Um, how, what do you think have been the most significant changes as a result of the pandemic? Um, to, to this world of work? I think just the day-to-day -day of how we all work, not only now, but how we will work in the future has changed hugely. Um, I think we're not really going to go back to that classic nine days uh, nine to five five days a week in the office um i don't think anyone wants to do that and i also think people realize that actually it's not that effective you know we I feel like companies are based around this culture that you have to be in all the time and it's almost like your manager standing over your shoulder checking what you're doing whereas people have realized now that actually people can effectively work from home and they want to work from home that being said i don't think the office is dead i think that people are a bit frustrated with working at home and things like that so i think we'll see a bit of a hybrid system in the future where people have a lot more flexibility to work the way they want i think more broadly in terms of the world of work i think we've seen a real shift in the types of jobs that kind of can last this kind of recession and this pandemic and some sectors and jobs which have really been hit hard um so i think moving forward we might see a big shift i mean there's already been a government campaign which has received quite a lot of criticism but about about kind of made people in the arts looking for jobs in other sectors there are definitely some sectors that are going to struggle to recover to the levels that they were at before the pandemic and you touched upon income inequality before how, how do you think the pandemic is going to impact inequality through the world of work? Um, I think there are some ways it can benefit um, people. I think before you had to fit a certain profile and live in a certain place to get certain jobs, whereas now with increased flexibility, say for example, you're able to work from home more days a week, you might find that there are more women who are able to return to the workforce because they can fit it more flexibly around childcare that before they couldn't. Um, you might also find a lot of surveys that I, I've kind of seen um, 
show that people, tech companies, for example, in the US are looking to hire more diverse talent from around the world. They're not necessarily looking for people who can turn up to their offices in San Francisco. They're quite happy to hire someone who will work remotely from wherever that may be. Um, so it does mean that people who can't maybe afford to live in really kind of rich inner city areas or even can't afford to live in, you know, first world countries might be able to get these great jobs. Um, so in many ways, it might increase the diversity of people that companies can hire. But at the other end of the spectrum, I think there are some limits because obviously, you know, if you can hire really cheap labor somewhere abroad, it might push down wages, which might have a really kind of negative impact on on kind of income inequality and also a lot of the jobs that have been destroyed are kind of low paying jobs so you're seeing a lot of people probably at the the bottom end of the income tier who are really struggling at the moment and um i think a lot needs to be done to protect them and then what, what do you think is the future of office work so do you, do you think that we are going to see um when the pandemic is over do, you know everyone going back into the office again do you think we're going to see sort of a, a blended um, um, situation where we work a few days at home, a few days in the office, or do you think remote working is going to be something that we continue with even after uh, the pandemic's over? Um, I think we'll probably see a hybrid. I mean, I for one can't wait to go back into an office, but then I know people who kind of love working from home. I think definitely kind of younger um, people who are just joining the job market, there's more for them in the office. There's more of their social life. They have less up to keep them at home. Um, and also to get ahead and to make an impression, I feel like you do need to see people in person. Um, but I think definitely this kind of flexible model where people don't want to have to pay and take the time to commute every day. So we'll probably be seeing a lot more people working from home a few days a week but I do think that offices are not dead and speaking to to when I wrote articles speaking to a lot of tech startups for example I was surprised at how many of them weren't looking to cut down on their office sizes and were expecting a kind of a full return to the office um so I think they definitely still want the capacity whether in you know 5 10 15 years companies change the way that they work and kind of see the appeal I mean it's very expensive to hire offices real estate in the middle of city centres so I can really see the appeal for companies to try and cut that cost out but I just think the way that we operate companies and the way that we work you know at the moment we're just trying to replicate those systems remotely and it doesn't work you have to kind of redesign a company completely around remote working to make it work and I think a lot of companies are too big and too old and too set in their ways to do that but a lot of maybe tech startups might see it as a great way to to start a company more cheaply and to be really innovative. Um, and so maybe we'll see it further down the line. Um, there have been more studies that are coming out now on how working from home uh, affects our productivity. You know, some of the benefits that have been identified are not having to commute, which is known as, I think, the second uh, least enjoyable activities that we do on a daily basis. Um, you know, not um, having maybe our work um, uh, or not being interrupted, let's say, so we were able to find a flow at home, oh, depending on whether you have a family, that is probably. Um, and then on the other side, you know, our drawbacks are that, you know, do we lose a bit of motivation and stimulation at times when we're just sort of working on our own? Um, so I, the question I want to ask you, like, in your opinion, you know, do you think that productivity um, will be better for people that work from home or do you think it'll be worse or do you think this is entirely dependent on certain factors? I think at the moment, productivity has probably been hit hard because one, you know, living and working during a pandemic, I think is enough to 
to dampen anybody's spirits but I think also we're living this suboptimal world where we're not designed you know people's homes are not designed for working from home companies are not designed they kind of had to panic you know in the space of a week they had to shift all their operations so actually I think at the moment it's not great because you've got you know you're either sharing a table in the kitchen with two other people doing other jobs or you're a parent you're trying to juggle you know homeschooling at the same time but maybe going forward when we have a choice to go in or work from home we'll be able to choose what best suits us and if we're choosing you know to work a few days from home and a few days in the office we might find that our productivity increases because like you say you gain all that time from commuting for example um, but you can also escape to the office if you need to to kind of work somewhere that's designed a bit more um, optimally for for working rather than home um, so I think it's interesting and I think that yeah productivity long term might have some benefits but I think in the short term we're definitely not seeing those benefits absolutely yeah and I think um, this is just a a comment to make but I think we maybe had a bit of a honeymoon period at the start of the pandemic where it was you know it was a real novelty to to work at home to to, to make those people that had families you know spend time with the family but now we're going to enter the sort of the dark winter months um you know I I, I think our sort of our motivation and our um stimulation may be impacted but also we've got to be mindful of sort of the mental health side of things that that we we will as you know particularly as maybe the furlough scheme um uh, is drawn back we will start to see um greater damage in terms of mental health and it'd be interesting to see like the knock-on effects that has on productivity uh, of workers now the other thing i wanted to touch upon um is if the office is not going to be the, the the first place that people go to do you think that you'll we'll, we will see firms actually paying workers um more to 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 work in the office so giving them maybe a, a top up on, on their feet um or will it be a case whereby um we, people that work from home or, or or want to work from home actually start being sort of underpaid maybe for their work or paid less Um, so something that I found where I wrote an article kind of on this kind of topic and actually people in the US and the UK on average said that they would be willing to take a 10 to 15 percent pay cut to work from home, which I suppose isn't that surprising if you think about all the costs of working in an office in terms of commuting, how much you pay for train fares, especially in this country, or if you pay to have a more expensive property like closer to where you live which you won't necessarily need to do anymore so I think if workers are willing to take a pay cut we're probably going to see companies paying them less um, because if there are people who are willing to work for less remotely then why wouldn't companies take advantage of that um, in terms of paying people to go into the office I mean I suppose it wouldn't be surprised there are certainly sectors which have more of a culture of wanting people to be there and like you know, putting a lot of value on FaceTime as opposed to necessarily other measures of productivity. Um, so we might be seeing that. And, but I do think there's enough of a pull, for, like you say, for offices in terms of the social aspect, in terms of, you know, it just being a, a good designed as a good place to work and meet other people and innovate. So I don't know whether necessarily companies will need to give people that financial incentive to return, but it'll be interesting to see whether different sectors take different approaches mm. or whether actually you know it becomes a slightly universal thing where there is a big pay discrepancy because you know even in London people get paid a lot more to work in London are we going to see maybe a bit more of a distribution around the country where actually there isn't that big you know gap in wages or a premium for working in London because actually you can do that job 
in London, but remotely from anywhere in the country. And one thing we haven't touched upon um, is creativity. So, it, I, I mean, speaking from um, personal experience, you know, when I was away from school for a long period, you do lose your creativity because you're just not seeing maybe problems at first hand and, and you're not problem solving in the way that you would otherwise do. Do you, do you think that firms and um, I, the companies maybe that you're speaking to, do you think they can still be as creative when we have um, workers sort of working, you know, working from home and, and not necessarily um, being in person and having those in-person conversations? So yeah, I think it really depends on the company. I think most companies will really struggle with this. Um, Steve Jobs kind of was a believer that actually a lot of innovation and um, kind of creation happened from accidental meetings of people in the workplace. And I think that is probably true because, you know, there's nothing to really stimulate you at home in terms of creativity um, because there's nobody to talk to. Whereas you think about the amount of conversations you have in school or at work that actually spark something that you then go off and kind of think about later on. Um, and there's actually in social theory, something called the Allen curve, which shows that the further you sit away from someone, the far less likely you are to communicate, which does make sense. I mean, it's very logical, but you know, someone who sits six foot away from you versus someone who sits 60 feet away from you, apparently you're four times more likely to communicate with them. If you take that to the extreme and then you're working from home, you're not talking to anyone really. And so yeah. actually I think, especially for tech companies and startups, there is a huge value in having those kind of connections and in-person meetings. Um, but then I have talked to companies who are designed as remote first companies and they say there are real advantages as long as the company is designed the right way because in an office it really benefits extroverted people who are very good at making their voice heard whereas actually you might not be the loudest person in the, in the room but having conversations over zoom and things like that might give other people who have very valid opinions and contributions the space to speak in a way that they might not put their hand up in the middle of a kind of 20 person meeting so i think there are some benefits but a lot of companies i think are designed in such a way that they'll really struggle with creativity and connection unless people are in the office Right, onto your bread and butter, the, the tech market. Um, so I just want to, want to ask you, you know, the, the, the tech market's absolutely boomed um, since the start of the pandemic. Is it going to continue to grow at this rate? Um, and what do you think are some of the next big sort of breakthrough ideas in the market? Um, so I think there's been a lot of chat about there being a bubble in the tech market because certainly at the start of the year when the stock market was doing really well it really was those big tech companies like Apple and Google and Microsoft that were really driving the growth and if you look at it um, the way that you know a lot of people look at the stock market is whether stocks are overvalued relative to kind of the fundamental things that um, investors look at when they invest in the stock and suddenly some people seem to think that the tech market is overvalued but on the flip side you know these are the companies that are going to benefit the most from what we're seeing for the pandemic if you just think about all the you know things like Zoom and Microsoft Teams and all the applications that people are now using day to day that they didn't use before, it is these big tech companies that are gonna benefit from that. So it is hard to see how they don't keep growing at the rate that they're currently growing. I think the biggest risk is maybe in the form of regulation and things like that. There's been a lot of talk about um, there being too much power in the market and um, tech companies needing to be regulated both in the US and in Europe. So that might kind of put a dampener on things, but I think certainly at the moment, um, we're going to keep see see the market keep growing and certainly if we see a kind of positive outcome from the US election in terms of economic stability and things like that I think it's definitely kind of will keep growing maybe at the pace we're seeing at the moment 
for a few more months or years. I mean, I don't want, don't want to be quoted on that. I'm not giving investment advice, but I, I think we'll probably see it continue. Excellent. Well, I ask, I ask all my listeners this question, um, and the question is, what is your utopian economy? Uh, I think it's a, it's a very big question. Um, I think for me, a lot of the way, a lot of the ways in which the global economy operates now is really a reflection of a lot of like historic injustices that have kind of played out. Um, and if we were to designing an economy from scratch today, it wouldn't, a lot of these things wouldn't be in place. So for example, if you think about the impact of slavery on economic inequality or colonialism on the growth of developing countries, um, all these things have huge consequences on the way that economies operate today. So if, you know, if we were designing a utopian economy, none of these things would have happened. Um, so for me, it's about addressing these historic power imbalances between companies, uh, countries and sections of societies that um, would lead to more equitable economic outcomes. And I think beyond that, it's just about redesigning economic priorities to take into account things that I think historically we've ignored. So whether that's mental health or the environment, the way we measure things in economics doesn't really account for these to the extent that they should be accounted for. So I think, changing the way that we measure economic progress would also be another big thing. Excellent. Right, economics still remains a largely male-dominated discipline. Um, and I just wondered if you could give um, our female listeners um, a bit of advice if they are considering studying maybe economics at A-level, economics at university, or even going into the industry. Yeah, so I think, yeah, you're right, it is a very male dominated field. And I think that's why it's particularly important to pay attention to the female economists who are doing really big and important things. So I think, you know, a great example of that this year was um, Esther Duffler, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for really interesting work. And I think, you know, she's a pioneer in many respects for the work she's doing, but also just for being a female economist, which kind of shouldn't be a thing anymore but it is um so i think the important thing to realize is that while i think economics has a bit of an image problem everyone thinks it's kind of white middle-aged men in suits it's not just like that and it's really important to have the diversity of not just gender but also ethnicity and sexuality when designing policy because it actually really changes economic outcomes um like an imf 2018 paper found that actually female economists are far more likely to advocate for government intervention, they're far more likely to prioritise environmental policy. So actually the way we design policy really ref is reflected um, by the people who, who are there designing it. So I think my advice would just be to not be deterred by this image that people have of economists um, and pay more attention to the women who are kind of making waves. You know, the head of the IMF, the head of the ECB, these, they're both women, which is great. Um, and to the extent that it is true that that it's still kind of white middle-aged men in suits um it's really important that that doesn't kind of remain true so it's even more important that girls do go into it as a as an area so that that can change further down the line excellent and, and you you are changing the narrative yourself um amy it's been absolutely lovely speaking with you today um thank you for everything you're incredibly articulate in your answers um and i wish you the best of luck with everything going forward thank you it's been great to be on here and chat with you Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any thoughts on the episode, do email me on econandme at gmail.com, all one word, that's econandme at gmail.com. Next episode, I'm inviting onto the show former student and now civil servant Ed Parker Humphreys to discuss universal basic income.